All right, here in Matthew chapter 5 today, we're going to look at a very important question. And it's this question here on the screen. What are King Jesus' standards for living in his kingdom? Remember, Matthew is predominantly showing us that Jesus is king. Talking about King Jesus here. Well, King Jesus has some standards. And you need to meet those standards in order to live in his kingdom. And Jesus proceeds to help us here in that regard. As we've seen from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts at the beginning of chapter 5 here, Jesus is focusing on the internals. The scribes and Pharisees and many people at that time tended to focus on the externals. But Jesus focused on the internals. That's the primary thrust here in Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. Here Christ re-emphasizes the divine standards for living in his kingdom. Notice I said re-emphasize. It's not just an emphasis. He's re-emphasizing because we learned last week from verses 17 through 20 what Jesus thought about the law. Jesus came not to abolish and destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. Jesus likes the law, the Old Testament scriptures, that is, and he believed in that. He wasn't, he wasn't throwing them out the window and getting rid of them. He was re-emphasizing what Old Testament scripture actually taught. What we see here is that God's standards are in direct contrast to Jewish traditions, though. Uh, the rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees, they, they, were, they were teaching uh, often tradition, things that were outside the Bible. And Jesus is bringing us back to the Bible here and helping us to understand what the Old Testament means. It's contrary to the external and hypocritical righteousness that typified the scribes and the Pharisees, which we saw in verse 20 there, the righteousness that God requires is, first of all, internal. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was external, though, right? And we see that truth here again in our passage for today. If it, Jesus is, is, is basically going to tell us here, if, if righteousness doesn't exist in the heart, then you don't have it. It, it. Righteousness doesn't exist at all if it's not in the heart. Though it had been long forgotten or neglected by most of the Jews of Jesus' day, that truth was presented to them in the Old Testament. It was there. If they looked at it and they studied it, it was there. For example, let me just give you one example. The prophet Jeremiah said, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. That's what God said in Jeremiah chapter 17. God searches the heart. It's, it's always, righteousness has always been an issue of the heart. That has never changed. Now in our passage we're going to look at today, Jesus uses this phrase several times. And the phrase is found, well the first time it's mentioned is in verse 21. Look at Matthew 5, verse 21 here. You'll see the first example. Jesus is going to use this over and over again for every one of these illustrations. Look at verse 21, because he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. That phrase is used in verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43. 
And what Jesus is doing with that phrase, you have heard that it was said, he's introducing six illustrations for us. Six illustrations, all to prove the same point. He's he's showing all the same point. Six illustrations he's given in this part of his Sermon on the Mount. The phrase has reference, by the way, to the to the rabbis, the, the rabbinical, traditional teaching. And in each illustration, Jesus is contrasting that human teaching from the rabbis with the teaching from God's Word, particularly the Old Testament, of course. The examples here show... Uh, ways in which God's righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember verse 20, uh, it it said, uh, Jesus mentions in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does that look like? Well, Jesus is going to show us what that looks like. He's going to tell us. So the things Jesus is going to mention here in these illustrations are dealing with specific subjects such as murder, sexual sin, divorce, speaking the truth, retaliation, and loving others. That's the six illustrations that Jesus gives. That's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. That's not the point. These these are just six illustrations to prove the point here. But they're all illustrating the same basic principle. And here is the illustration, the principle that Jesus is trying to get across. Listen closely. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. Righteousness is not a matter of externals. Okay? The traditions dealt with externals predominantly. But righteousness is internal. By the way... Uh, unlike what some people think, Jesus is not modifying the law of Moses here. He's not taking the Old Testament scriptures and modifying them, no. The essence of what he, he's just said in verses 17 through 20 is this, by the way. So in case you've, you've missed that message or forgotten, let me just kind of give you the essence, the, the main ideas of those verses, verses 17 through 20. Number one... Jesus' teaching stands firmly in agreement with every truth found in the Old Testament. You will never see Jesus disagree with Old Testament truth. Never. The Bible is a unity. Because it's written by the Holy Spirit. It's the same author. Number two, the Jewish religious traditions did not. They did not agree with Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus' teachings did. Okay? That's essentially, kind of, if you wanted to sum it up, what Jesus was teaching in verses 17 through 20, that's it. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the Jewish traditions that, that had accumulated over many years. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in England, uh, had to say. Quote, it's on the screen here. The condition of Judaism at the time of Christ was remarkably like that of the church in the 16th century. The scriptures were not translated into the languages of the people. The prayers, the scripture reading, and even most of the hymns were in Latin, which none of the common people knew or understood. 
When a priest gave a sermon, the people had nothing by which to judge what he said. They had no idea as to whether or not his message was scriptural. The Bible taught what the church said it taught. The church, therefore, placed its own authority over that of Scripture. End quote. I hope you see a problem with that. I firmly believe that Scripture is the only rule of what, what we should believe and what we should practice. Okay? Tradition certainly is not the, the authority. So, praise God for the Protestant Reformation. Okay? Uh, I can't wait to get to that part in church history. It's a wonderful time period. It essentially, essentially brought the world out of the Dark Ages. Scripture brought the world out of the Dark Ages. It brought light to a dark world. So the greatest contribution of the Protestant Reformation was really to give the Bible back into the hands of God's people. It brought it in their own language. Remember William Tyndale, one of my great heroes of the faith, uh, about 90% of your KJV Bible, by the way, comes from William Tyndale's translation. Uh, here's, here's a man who God had greatly gifted with languages. He knew the original Hebrew and Greek, so translated into English. And he, he, he said, I, I want every plowboy in England to know the scriptures better than the priest. So put God's word back into the hands of God's people. Praise God for people like that. Praise God for the printing press, which made scriptures somewhat affordable, because they were really outside the reach of most people at that time. But in a less extreme way than that, uh, the Jews of Jesus' day had been separated from their scriptures. In fact, you'll see... uh, a picture of one on the screen here. But uh, what had happened was, you remember uh, uh, Babylon evaded the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah at that time, and, and, and took many, many people, including like Daniel, off to Babylon. But during, during that time period when, when Israel pretty much ceased to exist and, and there were, they were in exile, most Jews lost their use of the Hebrew language. They had come to speak Aramaic. In addition to that, copies of the scriptures, uh, if, if somebody was rich enough to have one, you know, they, were, they were bulky, they were big, they were expensive, they were far out of the financial reach of the ad- average person. No way they could afford to have a co- own, their own copy of the scriptures. If they wanted to hear the scriptures, they had to go to the synagogue to, to listen to someone read the Hebrew Scriptures. Therefore, when the Hebrew text was read and it was expounded in their synagogue services, most of the worshipers understood little of the text and consequently had no basis for actually judging the teaching that was going on. It's a sad state of affairs. They had great respect for the rabbis, of course, who, who were able to read the Hebrew Scriptures. But sadly, their, their respect for the rabbis led them to accept whatever their leaders said. You know, if, if they said it, you know, as far as they were concerned, that's what God said. And sadly, most scribes and rabbis didn't even attempt to teach the scriptural text itself. Rather, they would uh, often teach from the Talmud, 
The Talmud, you say, well, what's that? Well, that was, that was a book of rabbinic traditions, just filled with teachings from the rabbis, not from Scripture. Often it had somewhat, somewhat of a base of Scripture, but it was, it was basically Jewish traditions. Therefore, both the Jewish leaders and the common people were amazed when Jesus actually preached and taught. What a radical departure from what they were used to. Uh, he, he, he departed both in, in the content as well as the delivery, or, or you could say the type of teaching that they were used to. Now, whether or not he was right or wrong, it was obvious to them well, Scripture itself even says, here's what Scripture says. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They noticed that. He was different. So before we actually start reading our, our text here for today, let me just kind of give you five helpful, basic principles that are summarizing this passage for us before we actually read it together. And uh, these five Basic principles are coming from uh, John MacArthur's commentary on Matthew. Number one, the first principle is that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter. The law, uh, hopefully you understand this idea, the law wasn't given to just be some mechanical set of rules. You know, do these, right? If you, you know, if you don't murder, you, you don't lie, and you don't steal, and you don't do all these other things, then, then God's going to see you as you know a good person no that wasn't the point it was given as a guide to the type of character that god requires it was a guide that's all it was was, the law was meant to point us to christ in fact law is a good thing not a bad thing but number two the second principle is the law is positive as well as negative it's both its purpose was not, uh, not only to prevent both inner and outward sin, yes, that's part of it, but it was also to promote outward and inner righteousness. I hope you understand that. Number three, the third principle is that the law is not an end in itself. It's not an end in itself. It had a deeper purpose. It goes beyond purifying the lives of God's people, its supreme purpose, which, like everything else in this universe, was what? What is the chief end of man? What is the heavens doing? The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. The chief end of mankind is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Okay, That's the supreme purpose of the law, like everything else. Number four, the fourth purpose is that God alone is qualified to judge men. Why is that? Well, number one, he's the only one who can see our hearts. Nobody else can see my heart. Nobody else can see your heart. Only God can do that. Only the Creator, by the way, has the right and the ability to judge. Nobody else does. Fifth principle is that every human being is commanded to live up to the perfect divine standard to which the law points the law is is showing us that we're not perfect but that there is one who is who has met the divine standards of righteousness 
So because that command is impossible for any of us to fulfill, God himself has provided the fulfillment. How did he do that? Through his son, Jesus Christ. He was righteous. He is righteous. So what we see here then is the one who is the demander of righteousness is also the one who is the giver of righteousness. Does that make sense? So the the one who's the lawgiver is the redeemer, in other words. The lawgiver is the redeemer. He's the one who has bought us back from the slave market of sin. He's the one who has fulfilled all righteousness. So those are five helpful principles, kind of giving you a big picture of what is Jesus teaching here? What, what's the point of this? Well, we, we could look at these six illustrations in, individually in one sermon. But I don't want the book of Matthew to take us three years to get through, okay? And they really all go together anyway. There's six illustrations that Jesus is going to give us here. Showing us the divine standards of what it, uh, of what it is to live in his kingdom. And with each one, what, what I want to do is I want to look at the Jewish tradition. Jesus is going to bring up the Jewish tradition, the Jewish teachings, if you will. And then what we're going to get is, is Jesus' perspective. Okay, So essentially, each one of these six illustrations, I have two points I want to look at. Okay, Is that, is that helpful to you, I hope? All right. So we'll, we'll get the Jewish tradition in contrast to what was Jesus' perspective on the Old Testament scriptures. We'll see whether or not Jesus agrees with the Jewish tradition here. Okay. Our first question that Jesus brings up here is, who is a murderer? He defines what a murderer is. Okay. Look at verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 21. Jesus says this. These are the words of the living God, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And then another illustration is mentioned in verse 25 here. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We don't have pennies here in New Zealand anymore. You understand what that means, I hope. In other words, in modern terms, it's down to the last ten cents. You're going to pay all, is what he's saying. So this is Jesus' first illustration. He's showing us... Who is a murderer? And Jesus is referring to the Old Testament, of course, here, when he says, do not murder. That, of course, comes from one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. 
The Pharisees, I hope you understand, uh, taught that murder consists of taking someone's life. Okay? That's what the Pharisees and scribes believed. But the Lord said the commandment goes beyond that. It extended uh, not only to the act itself, but as you can see here, Jesus says this, this command extends to the internal attitude that is actually behind the act. What actually causes someone to plunge a knife into someone else's body? What causes someone to take a gun and shoot someone? What actually causes that to happen is the heart. What is inside someone, their anger, causes that to happen. Jesus is addressing the internals here, the anger that actually causes the act of murder. Of course, murder is wrong, right? Jesus is not saying murder is not, okay? He's not saying uh, that the act itself uh, is, is the right thing to do. No, he's, of course, he's agreeing with that. But the anger prompting the act, he is saying, is also wrong. Okay? Jesus is saying the one who hates in his heart is also a murderer. And he gives some examples here of, of what anger in the heart looks like. Of course, Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. And he gives some examples of words here of how we can speak anger coming from our heart. For example, uh, some of you might have a, a Bible translation that has the word raka. I don't know how you say that word. Uh, but, but the word raka there or, um, is, is actually a, a, a way where, where you can become angry and call somebody, a, a, it's a derogatory name. Uh, raka is actually Aramaic. It's a derogatory name. The, the, it's, it's, it's a nasty, nasty term to call somebody. Uh, ESV doesn't use the word raka there, it just, uh, because most people don't know what that is. <laughs> But the idea that uh, the ESV is, is saying there, the idea in verse 22, I say unto you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So the idea is there of insulting someone, saying derogatory names and references to somebody else. That's the idea there. And then, and then to call somebody a fool was was, of course, also a horrible thing to call somebody. What it's doing, though, is it's demonstrating the sinfulness of the heart. It's demonstrating anger inside. A person with such a sinful heart, obviously, is a sinner. And Jesus said, that type of person is headed to the fire of hell. Now, what is he referring to there? The fire of hell. Well, hell there is literally the, the, the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was, was the Valley of Hinnom, which was, um, uh, it was, it was a, the southern valley just outside Jerusalem where, where they used to um, uh, burn the rubbish. It was a rubbish dump. They would burn their rubbish. They would throw criminals. You know, anyone who was executed, they'd throw them in there. Anything, anything that was rubbish would go in there. And it was just constantly burning. It stunk. There was worms. It was on fire. It was smoking. It it was a horrible place. And it was a horrible place because it went all the way back to, to, to idol worship, where, uh, where the Israelites, they, they would bring their, they would even bring their own children and throw their own children into the fire 
So it was a horrible place, and that's what they did there. It used to be a really nice valley until they did that sort of thing. But then King Josiah came along. King, you remember King Josiah? He was a good king. And he, he destroyed the idol worship, burned down, you know, cut down all the groves, and, and uh, turned it into a place that uh, they, they hopefully would never do that sort of thing again. And so eventually it ended up just becoming a rubbish dump. But that's the word that Jesus is using here, the, the Gehenna, this fire of hell. It was that valley south of Jerusalem where the continual burning of fire was going on as it was consuming the city rubbish. And it became a suitable name for the eternal punishment of the wicked. That's the word Jesus uses in reference to a literal place that's not outside Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where it is, but a literal place called hell where unbelievers go. So what should we do if we're angry? What should we do if we have anger in our hearts? Okay, that's a good question to ask. Well, it's, it's an attitude of the heart, right? You, you, you can't, all these things are internal. You can't deal with them just, just by externals, okay? Usually the world's philosophy of dealing with anger is, you know, you know uh, count to ten or, you know, you know, hit a punching bag or do, do things like that, right? That's all they can give you. That's the world's philosophy, you know, hit a punching bag instead of a person. That's not solving the issue of anger, is it? Wrong attitudes need to be dealt with. They need to be made right. And the way Jesus says you make them right is through reconciliation. That's the illustrations he gives here. Reconciliation needs to be done. Uh, It needs to be done between Christians. Uh, There's two different parties that are mentioned here. Uh, Verses 23 and 24 mention the innocent party. And then verse 25 and 26 mention the the offending person. So Jesus is saying with the offending person, you, you, or the innocent, you, you take, first, take the first step. You take the first step to be reconciled with that other person. Whether you're innocent or you're the offending person, you need to take the first step. Don't, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Without such re- reconciliation, Jesus says here in our passage that Hey, you, you can even do good things like trying to present uh, gifts to God at an altar, for example. Jesus says here, you know, you, you leave the gift. You go get reconciled first. That's what Jesus says. Reconciliation is more important to God than you trying to, you know, act like you're worshiping God when you've got a broken relationship with somebody else. Let's get practical for a moment. Should we come to worship and put on our church mask and pretend, hey, I'm worshiping God when, when the, the person on the other side of the aisle, you're not reconciled to? You've offended that person or that person has offended you and you're not talking to that person. I'm sitting on the other side of the church from that person. I don't want to have anything to do with that person. Jesus is saying, stop playing church. Get real, get transparent, go be reconciled to that person. You can't worship me, Jesus is saying, unless you are first reconciled to your fellow believers. Well, 
What happens sometimes here is we can see Jesus mentions sometimes people would take you to court. Uh, Maybe you owed them money or something. Jesus is saying uh, what, what would happen sometimes is they would go to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was made up of 70 members of Jews. And, and they were the court, and they would, they would determine, you know, someone was guilty or not. Well, how much do you owe? Uh, Jesus is saying, on the way to the court trial, you need to clear things up if you can. <laughs> you know, if that, if that person's willing to listen to you, clear up the issues. Be reconciled, even on the way to court. Because otherwise, you get in court... And those 70 members of the Sanhedrin, you know, they're going to they're make you pay everything. You're going to be penniless. Okay, do you get the point? So Jesus is defining here what, what a murderer is. And of course, as with every one of these, it's something that's internal. Our second question is, who is an adulterer? Who is an adulterer? Look at Matthew 5, 27. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your, excuse me, and if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, Jesus is dealing with the internals here. This is the second practical illustration. This one's dealing with adultery. Which, of course, is another one of the Ten Commandments, right? From Exodus chapter 20. Jesus is not disagreeing with the Ten Commandments. He's agreeing with them. But once again, the the Pharisees' teaching was only concerned with the outward act. They they thought that if they they did the outward part, they were right with God. They said the only way one could commit adultery was through an act of sexual union. Jesus didn't think that, though, does he? (laughs) No, not here. They correctly quoted the commandment, but sadly they missed the point of the commandment. Adultery, Jesus says, begins with thinking lustful thoughts. The lustful desire in the heart indicates that you're not right with God. That's what Jesus said. In verse 28, by the way, Jesus uses that little word, look, there in verse 28. Everybody see that? Put your eyeballs on on Scripture. That word, look, what is Jesus talking about there? Because he's helping us to know about lustful desires here. The word look is a continuous process of looking. It, it, it doesn't mean that, uh, <clears throat> it doesn't mean, you know, if, you know, guys, you're driving down the road and you see one of those nasty billboards and you, you just happen to glance up and you, and you saw it and you're like, whoa. That doesn't mean you've committed adultery. Okay, you understand that? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about continuously looking to fulfill evil desires in your heart. That's what he's talking about here. Let me just get practical. He's he's speaking of the man, in other words, who who is taking the second and the third look. You know, as you know, 
drives me nuts sometimes. For example, you're walking through the mall, right? I can't even walk through the mall with having issue, without having issues of temptation, right? You see that almost naked woman, you know, who's on the, the front of the store, right? It's not a sin for me to see that. Jesus is not saying that. But, but if, I, if, I, if I then stand there and like, whoa, and I start gazing and I'm continually looking at the immodest woman in the picture, Jesus is saying I'm committing adultery. You understand that? Uh, or or maybe, maybe you don't have an issue with that. Maybe it's, you know, maybe you like selecting, purposely selecting that television program you know has nudity. Or maybe you're one of those people who likes to go to the beach in the summertime and, and gaze at women in their bikinis. Right? Jesus is saying that's, those are examples of, of adultery. And that's not just limited to that. It's, it's, it's any such thing with lustful desire. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's a high standard, I know. Now, ladies, you're not off the hook here. Yes, Jesus is using us men as, as the primary example here, but his condemnation also applies equally to women. Okay, I'm, I'm well aware that men probably have more of an issue with this. But women also lust. Okay, I know you do. Women are also susceptible to lustful looking, even, sadly, to enticing men to lust. That's a huge problem for us men. So, men, just let me say this, all right? Uh, if you're married, show some courageous leadership in your home with your wife. Okay, Part of your job description, if you will, is to help your wife to know what modest dressing looks like. Okay, sometimes ladies don't, you know, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. Particularly if you have a daughter, it's your job to help your daughter to understand what is modest dress. Okay, us men have issues with with adultery partly because women are purposely out there, or even not even purposely out there, dressing immodestly, and they're enticing us to lust. Okay, so that's an issue. So men, be courageous in your leadership in the home. Your wives need that guidance in what is modest. And ladies, by the way, if your husband says something to you and is trying to help you in this regard, you need to be submissive, whether or not you understand what he's saying or not. Okay? So ladies, you need to listen to what he says. Ladies, take care in how you dress. Take care in how you dress. The Bible calls us to be modest. All right? So don't, don't wear... You know, clothing that's really tight and showing off all your body parts. Don't wear clothing that's, you know, too loose so when you bend over then guys are getting a show. All right, don't, don't wear stuff that's too high, too low. All right, those are just some simple things. Just be modest. Uh, don't expose yourself with the desire to be looked at and lusted after. Too many women are like that. Creating, making it very difficult for us as men, all right? Some of the guys in here may not be willing to tell you that, but I'll tell you, it's an issue, even in churches. Most churches I go to, there's at least one woman there whom I, I can't look at for very long because purposely or not, she's enticing me to wrong thoughts. All right, It's a problem. So, having said that, most of you need to be commended for your modesty, okay? All right. So, let, let me thank you. Uh, m- most of the time, it's not an issue. 
I'm not I'm not I'm not tempted like I am if I'm walking around the mall or downtown or whatever. Uh, it's fortunately it's not an issue. Praise God for that. You're to be commended. So. But Christ's words recorded here in verses 29 through 30 have often been misunderstood. Maybe you don't even understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus, by the way, when he's talking about, you know, gouging out your eye and cutting off hands and arms and this sort of thing, he's not suggesting you do that literally. Okay, please, nobody go home and, and, and grab the chainsaw or an axe or something. It, please, please do not do that. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. He's not saying take the axe and cut off your hand. He's not talking about physical, literal mutilation here. He's not saying go home, look in the mirror, and pluck your eyeball out. It's not his point. And one of, the reasons, one of the reasons we know that's not Jesus' point is, well, let me ask you this. If I pluck out my right eye, can I still lust with my left eye? Of course I can. I, in fact, I can still lust with no eyeballs. I can be blind and still lust in my head, right? Can I still commit sin with, with a right hand that's gone? Of course I can so that's one of the reasons we know Jesus is not talking literally here. This is figurative language. He's be radical in dealing with sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Be radical in dealing with your sin. Don't let it just go on and, and, and do its thing. Mortify it. Kill it. So he's advocating the removal of the inward cause of the sin. Right? Your eyeball's not causing the sin. Your hand isn't causing the sin. Your feet aren't causing you to sin. It's your heart that's causing you to sin. Right? When I lust, and I'm committing adultery, it's in my heart. You understand that, I hope. Anger's in my heart. These, all these things are in my heart. So, a lustful heart would ultimately lead to adultery, One's heart then needs to be changed. Heart needs to be changed. You can do everything right on the outside, but even Martin Luther himself found when he was, you know, he holds himself up in a cloister, he found even then that sin was there. So we need a change of heart. One commentator said this, it's on the screen for you here. In Jewish culture, the right eye and the right hand represented a person's best and most precious faculties. The right eye represented one's best vision, and the right hand one's best skills. Jesus' point is that we should be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even the most cherished things we possess, if doing that will help protect us from evil. Nothing is so valuable as to be worth preserving at the expense of righteousness. End quote. Okay? Radical amputation here, figuratively speaking, is what needs to happen in our hearts. You've got to deal, deal with sin in a serious way, whatever is necessary to, to get rid of it, to, to destroy it. Let me just give you an example, because uh, one of the things that's disturbing of our modern day with, the, uh, with technology that we have today is technology, is, it's, it's a neutral thing, right, depending on how you use it. Okay, you understand that? Hopefully you understand that. I'm not against technology, per se. But sometimes technology can be used in evil ways. So let me give you an example of uh, how radical amputation might happen 
practically speaking in our lives, all right? Let's say you found an old girlfriend or some old boyfriend on Facebook. You know, this was one of those old heartthrobs you used to have many, many years ago. And, uh, you, you know, you were Twitter-pated. You know, kind of like Thumper was in the movie Bambi. He was Twitter-pated. You know, that old foot of his was just pounding the ground every time he saw that female rabbit. Right? Maybe you used to be like that with some boy or some girl. And you, you, you think, you know, I wonder what's going on with this person. So you look them up on Facebook. And then you, become, you end up you, you chatting away. You find out all sorts of things about each other. You become emotionally attached to the person who is not your spouse. What do you do? What do you do? Well, if you want to obey Jesus and you're concerned about committing adultery, well then, because that relationship is causing sinful desires... You need to immediately cut off the communication and unfriend that person. That's an example. Right? Facebook is one of the greatest destroyers of marriages today. And I'm not against Facebook, okay? <laughs> Please don't put me in that category. It can be a wonderful tool when it's used rightly. But it's also a very dangerous tool, and you need to be aware of that. All right, the third question Jesus brings up here is, is divorce acceptable? Is divorce acceptable? Look what Jesus says in verse 31. Verse 31. It was also said, again, he's quoting Jewish tradition here, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay? So verse 31 is the Jewish tradition. Does Jesus agree with the Jewish tradition? Look at verse 32. We'll get Jesus' perspective here. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so as you can see there, Jesus' perspective does not match up with the Jewish tradition. You see, in Jesus' day, the dominant rabbinic position on divorce that it was it was actually permissible on any grounds you know if the guy wanted to get divorced to his wife he he didn't need a reason he could just do it the only requirement was the giving of a certificate of divorce you just had to hand her the paper so to speak and they were divorced didn't need a reason by that period of jewish history divorce had become uh, so easy. In fact, uh, there were some, some, some really silly examples I read about. For example, one guy divorced his wife because she burnt his food. She was cooking dinner for the guy, and, and she, she accidentally burned his food, so, she, so he divorced her. Right? I mean, there's just silly examples like that through history. Often the husband didn't even need to bother to give a reason because there was no reason required for divorce. That's the, that's the age that Jesus was living in, okay? That was Jewish tradition. And so Jesus responds to that Jewish tradition, and he, he, he's strongly stating here that the, the view of God, if you will, which he, he even goes back to the beginning several times in Scripture, back to the book of Genesis, to show that marriage is an indissoluble unit. It is permanent, Marriage is not to be terminated by divorce, Jesus says, over and over again. Scripture makes that clear. In fact, 
uh, if you, when you look at the book of Malachi, it says that God actually hates divorce. God tells us what he thinks of divorce here. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay? That's Old Testament scriptures, which, of course, Jesus agrees with. Okay? God has always hated divorce. That hasn't changed, okay? According to Genesis chapter 2, marriage is indissoluble. It is permanent. It is until death do we part. Okay? Death is the only thing that should separate a married couple. It's the only thing. Not, be, not even adultery, by the way. Adultery, uh, you know, <clears throat> there, there is the so-called exception clause in Scripture. By the way, God never commands divorce. You understand that? But God recognized it being very merciful and gracious to us. He recognizes sometimes there is an innocent party. And so God provided a, a so-called exception clause for the innocent party. Okay? But God never commands divorce. Okay? God doesn't want divorce to happen. Even, even after adultery, God still wants the couple to reconcile and be committed to one another. That is God's plan. But if one couple decides to leave or you know, do something, then, then God provided, was very gracious and merciful to the innocent party. That's, that was the purpose for that so-called exception clause. All right, number four. <clears throat> number four, should we make vows and oaths? Should we, should we make vows and oaths? Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay? So here's Jesus' perspective on taking vows and oaths. You say, uh, was that different from the Jewish tradition? Yes, it was. The Pharisees were notorious for their oaths. They often made allowances for um, having a mental reservation uh, for their oath and uh, if they wanted to be relieved of their oaths, they, they would do what Jesus mentions here. They would, they would make their oath on, on heaven or earth or Jerusalem or sometimes even their own head. Okay? So, you know, they didn't want to make their oath, you know, saying, you know, they didn't want to swear on God, but they would swear on these other things, so to speak, right? That, that's what they were doing. They, they could argue, well, you know, Hey, you know, since God himself wasn't involved in my oath, then, you know, I don't, it's not actually binding. I don't actually have to keep that. Okay? That was Jewish tradition. Right? You know, in this case, you know, I swore by heaven, so, you know, it doesn't count. I didn't really mean that. I'm going to break my oath. That's what they were doing. But Jesus said that oaths should not even be necessary. That's what he's saying. 
Oaths aren't even necessary. He said, do not swear at all. (laughs) The fact that oaths were used at all emphasizes the wickedness of man's heart here. And Jesus says, swearing by heaven, by earth, or by Jerusalem is is binding, in fact. Jesus is saying, okay, you want to go ahead and make an oath? I don't care if it's made on God's name or if you want to use heaven to swear on, or a Bible, or earth, or Jerusalem, or even your own head, it's all binding. Jesus says it's God's throne, it's his footstool, it is his holy city. It's still binding. So he's saying, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Okay? What you say, you're going to be held accountable for that. By the way, James seems to pick, on, pick up on what Jesus actually said here. Because look what, look what James says in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, My brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Okay? So Jesus says, oaths and vows aren't even necessary. And Jesus says, if you do take an oath or a vow, whether it's a marriage vow or, you know, you're signing the contract saying, hey, I'm going to pay all of this, whatever it is. Jesus says, let your yes be yes. If you say you're going to do it, do it. Or you're going to be held accountable. Number five, is retaliation acceptable? Is retaliation acceptable? Look at verse 38. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, what does Jesus think about retaliation? There was, a, there was this thinking at the time, which comes from the Old Testament, by the way. The eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was, was something that's actually in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Exodus, Leviticus, as well as Deuteronomy. But the context of that was in their civil law, which is different from what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about personal retaliation. He's not talking about what goes on in government. These laws were set up under their civil government to to keep um, a just system of laws, right? The punishment needed to fit the crime. You ever heard that? So if somebody, you know knocks out your tooth you know the civil government was to say okay you you get to lose a tooth right or you you know you you made somebody lose their eye well you get to lose an eye the the, the punishment fit the crime it was carried out under the judicial system their their government laws but that's different from what jesus is talking about jesus is talking about personal retaliation against an individual here This was called the law of retaliation. This eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth concept. It was given to protect the innocent, to make sure that retaliation didn't actually occur beyond the offense. Because you know what it is. You know, 
our, our human tendency, you know what it is, right? You know, hey, I lost a tooth. Well, this guy's going to lose all of his teeth, man. He, right? He, he, you know, I lost an eyeball. Well, that dude's losing both of his eyeballs. In fact, I just take his whole head off, right? That was, that was our natural tendency. So the idea was, there, was to help with that. But a righteous man, Jesus says, is characterized by humility and selfishness. Instead of, Jesus says, you know, if, if the Roman soldier walks up to you and says, hey, buddy, carry my pack for a mile or a kilometer. Jesus says, okay, the law says you carry the pack for the mile. Jesus says, why don't you surprise the Roman soldier and carry it twice that distance? Whoa. You mean this, this Roman soldier whom I don't like? In fact, I hate this guy. I hate him with all my guts. You mean I have to carry his heavy pack two miles? The law only says one. That's what Jesus is saying. As if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus says, if somebody wrongly strikes me on the cheek, which was very offensive to a Jew, if this guy strikes me on the cheek... That means I can punch his lights out, right? No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, give him the other one. Let him hit that one too. Whoa. You mean I can't hit the guy back? I can't punch his lights out? I mean, he, he hit me on the cheek. Come on, Jesus. Jesus says, no personal retaliation. Jesus also says, when you're sued, somebody's trying to take your clothes. <laughs> All right, he gives a couple examples of clothes here. Somebody's trying to take the shirt off your back. Literally, you go to your closet and you give them your other clothes. That's what Jesus is saying. You let the guy sue you. You deserve it. Okay. In fact, you pay him more than he's trying to get off you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't retaliate. Instead of retaliating, you do the opposite. In fact, here, you do what Jesus did. Well, the Bible mentions in Romans chapter 12, look at this. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you kill him, right? Is that what you do? Let him starve to death. No, that's not what Jesus says. Feed him. If, you're hungry, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you get the point? So what does Jesus think about personal retaliation? You know, if somebody does something really nasty to you, what do you do in return? Do something worse or in kind? No. You don't, you don't retaliate at all. You leave that person in God's hands. You overcome evil with good. By the way, this truth was seen to its greatest extent, of course, in the life of Jesus Christ. Peter, when, when he was talking about Jesus Christ, he said this in 1 Peter 2.23. He says, When Christ, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what do you do with the person who is the royal pain in the neck? 
who is not leaving you alone, who's attacking you, saying all kinds of nasty things about you, doing nasty things to you, slandering you, gossiping, maybe ripping you, stealing money off you, you know, defacing your property or whatever. What do you do with that kind of a person? Do what Jesus did. You don't strike back. You don't threaten the person. Instead, you pray for the person and you entrust that person in God's care. That's what you do. Well, that kind of carries on the next thought here. What, you know, what do you do with someone who is an enemy? How do you, how do you treat somebody who is your enemy? All right? We're not, by the way, we're not talking about enemies of the state here, okay? We're not talking about just wars, or we're not talking about a criminal who deserves capital punishment. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about personal stuff. Somebody who is your personal enemy, Right? Look at verse 43. Here's the Jewish tradition. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is that anywhere in the Bible? Do you, do you find that first part in the Bible? Love your neighbor? Yes, that's in the Bible. The Part of the problem with Jewish tradition is they left part of it off. <laughs> the, the Jewish the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament says, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, but the rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees, they didn't want to do that. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> They're too good for that. We don't want to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, I, I really love myself. You know, man, I look good. I'm, I'm wealthy. I'm smart. I got, I got it all together. Nobody else is as good as me. So there's just no way that I could possibly love somebody else as much as I love myself. That, that isn't going to happen. So they left that part off. We just say, love your neighbor. We won't talk about to what extent. So they left part of Scripture out. And then on top of that, then they added to Scripture. Not only did they leave part of Scripture out, they added to Scripture. Would you like something to drink? No? I'm going to drink so, that's what they did. The Pharisees taught, sure, go ahead and love other people. You know, love your neighbor. Love those who are near and dear to you. You know, love your family. You know, the, at least the ones you like. You know, love the, you know, the person who lives next door if they're good to you. And love your workmate if, you know, if that person pats you on the back and says nice things about you. Okay, you can love those kind of people. That's okay. But they had this idea, you know, there's no way I'm going to love my enemies. You know, all those Gentiles out there, oh, man, the Gentiles, no way. They're my enemy. I'm not going to love them. That's what they taught. But Jesus states that Israel should demonstrate God's love even to her enemies. God's love is for everybody. Now, how do we know this? Because Jesus gives an example here, which theologians call common grace. The common grace is shown here in God's love to everybody in the world. How do we know that? Did you notice what Jesus says here? Well, we haven't read this, have we? So let's look what he says. Look at verse 44. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa. (laughs) Wow, you mean, okay, God, you, you send your Son to shine on my unbelieving neighbor. That person who is my enemy. You, you allow your rain to fall on his crops. Wow. God loves those people. Even the ones who, who rebel against him. God loves them. How do we know? He puts his son on their crops. He allows rain to fall on them and on their crops and on their fields so they have food to eat and water to drink. That's an example of what theologians call common grace. God is graciously showing uh, his, his grace commonly to all people, whether they deserve it or not. So love was demonstrated that way by God. And God's saying, that's how you should demonstrate love, even to those who are your enemies. You love them anyway. Jesus concludes the entire section by saying, look look what he says in verse 48. He says, be perfect. And he gives this incredibly high standard, which is impossible for us to meet. He says, be perfect. By the way, it doesn't mean sinless. You can't be sinless in this life. That's impossible. You won't be sinless until you're glorified. But what an incredibly high standard. Be perfect as what? As your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't think that's talking about maturity, because I don't think it's referring to God's maturity. <laughs> so his message demonstrated God's righteous standard for us here. That's how high of a standard we need to strive for. That's what we look for. So if you're to be righteous, then you need to be as God is. God's perfect. That means we need to be holy as he is holy. So that means things like murder, lust, hate, deception, retaliation, those things, Jesus is saying, those do not characterize God. Those are examples of works of the flesh. He didn't lower his standard to accommodate humans. Instead, he's setting forth his absolute holiness as the standard. So if you want to know uh, the standards that King Jesus has for his kingdom, he kind of summarizes it here in verse 48. This is summarizing the whole thing. Be perfect as Jesus' heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, the standard can never be perfectly met by any one of us in this life. Okay? You're not going to be sinless in this life. It's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean you just kind of sit there and give up and say, well, I'm not even going to try. Jesus is your righteousness, my friends, okay? He imputes his righteousness to all those who are justified. But my friend, you need Christ's righteousness in sanctification as well. You can't live the Christian life on your own either. You have to abide in the vine, stay connected to Jesus Christ. With him, all things are possible. Strive for God's righteousness to be reproduced in your life. May God, by His grace, allow us to please Him in that way.
Let's pray.